Each month, there's questions that reflect the concern of members. And I've got to be honest with you. Sometimes when I get the questions, I think, how am I going to answer that question? It's a little more complex than people sometimes want to think about, and the lessons require us to try to understand some things. Uh, and I've even had people say, who asked that question? Sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I just walk in my office and there's a visitor's card on the back side of it. It's a question. Or sometimes it's a little scrap of piece of paper that someone has asked me and handed to me. And I pull it out of my pocket two or three weeks later and realize that uh, it's a question that someone has wanted to have asked. But it relates to questions that some people have. And some of the questions are practical. In fact, our second question tonight about worry is certainly practical in somebody's mind, and I think maybe more than we want to admit. But I want to point out to you that God has the right answer in every question we may have. Our problem sometimes is trying to search and find the right answer in Scripture. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven, Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? There's nothing too hard for God. God knows everything, and he knows every answer to every question that man might have. It's our challenge to try to reach it and find it in Scripture. Here's question one. Is it possible that both evolution and the Bible are true? Can they not be harmonized? Now, as I begin this, I think you need to understand that evolution, as we're talking about, is like that which was presented by Darwin in his Origin of the Species. The survival of the fittest. This idea that billions of years ago, this earth began to evolve and that everything that is here now is here as a result of natural process. That is, is that this happened and then this happened and everything was natural in this world. The Bible says that man is here as the result of God's divine process. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The attempt to try to harmonize this suggests that God used natural processes to bring about this world, that God used evolution, and that is a, a process that's known as theistic evolution. Theistic means believing in God, evolution obviously believing in it as well. Let me point out to you how men have attempted to try to reach this theistic evolution. There's basically three different approaches. The first is referred to as the gap theory, which is the gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. We'll look at that in just a moment. The second is called the day-age theory that suggests that every day of creation was not really one day, but was a long span of time. And the third one is a relatively new one, last several years, called the metaphorical or poetic theory. And I'm going to try my best to explain it. Well, let's talk about the gap theory. The gap theory says that in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, that there's a gap of a billions of years. Now, let's listen as we read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And they say, okay, now there's a big gap there. They say the earth was then without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the reason for that is to allow for billions of years. You see, if you have evolution, you have to have all these years in which supposedly evolution took place. And so in order to grant the evolutionist all those billions of years, they have to say, well, it happened between Genesis 1 and Genesis 1-2. Now, here's where it really gets colorful. They allege that there was a war between God and Satan, between verses 1 and 2, that God created the heavens and the earth, and then when you read it was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep, that is the world that was left after this great war. In other words, it was devastated, it was torn up, and that's where you have it. And in order to do that, they make reference to two passages of Scripture, The first one is found in Ezekiel chapter 28, and the other one is found in Isaiah chapter 14. Now, I want to take you to those passages. In chapter 28, and I'm going to begin in the middle of verse 11 or verse 12. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden The garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for the day you were created. And it's suggested here that this is a reference to Satan and his beauty in the garden of God in the very beginning. There's one major problem with that. Did you see the first part of verse 12? Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. This is not referring to Satan because we have God telling Ezekiel to take up this lamentation for the king of Tyre. This is a a king of a city. Well, let's go to... Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And they would say, see, there is Satan's arrogance where he feels as if he can somehow argue with God and that this great battle broke out. Again, there's another problem. If you look at Isaiah 14 in verse 4, that you take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. So whether you're reading Ezekiel chapter 28 and reading about the king of Tyre or you're reading Isaiah 14, you're reading about the king of Babylon. You're not reading about Satan. But in my judgment, there is a very basic, simple answer. In fact, if I was going to write in the margin of my Bible in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and I'd say why the gap theory is false is Exodus chapter 20 verse 11. 
And there Moses says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Now listen carefully. The Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them in six days. There's no room for a gap in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Now, the second is called the day-age theory. And I'm sure many of you have heard that idea expressed. You know, as with the Lord, a thousand years is one day, and one day is a thousand years. We read in Second Peter chapter 3. And so when you read about the days of creation, there's no reason to suppose that they're a literal day, but they could be just a long period of time. Again, the second the reason for this is to allow for the billions of years that the evolutionist must have to try to have his theory work. And so it's alleged that the days of creation were ages rather than days. Well, there's several problems with that. Number one is the Hebrew word used for day here is the word used for not a period of time, but a 24-hour day. And if that weren't enough, notice how the Holy Spirit says, and there was the evening and the morning the first day, and there was the evening and the morning the second day, and there was the evening and the morning the third day, all the way through the sixth day. How else could the Holy Spirit have expressed a 24-hour day than to say the evening and the morning. But then you come back to that wonderful passage found in Exodus 20, verse 11, and where he says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You don't have six ages. You have six days. And if you didn't appreciate that because he says, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's the reason why they separ separated that one day and they kept it holy unto the Lord. Now the tough one. What makes it tough is trying to be explained a convoluted idea. The word metaphor means to use as an illustration purpose. Like, for instance, Jesus said... I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the light. When you use that, a direct comparison, you're using a metaphor. And what is suggested is, is that uh, this view advocated by a man by the name of John Walton who teaches at Wheaton College or Wheaton University. There's another man that I mentioned to you before who's an error on a lot of things by the name of N2 Wright. They even have a whole website devoted to this, and it's called biologus.com. And they advocate all this on this website. And their view is to deal with it is to say that Genesis 1 through 11 is not an historical event, but is a function. Now, let me just for a moment try to go off the outline and try to give you a little idea. They will say that the words God rested is a figure that's found a lot of times in secular literature. 
And they say whenever say it's a God rested, that means he went to live in his temple. And so they would say what you have here is not a historical record of God doing this on the first day and God doing that on the second day, but it's like a poem or it's like a, a meaning. And so when God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, it's not that that's a day that he's doing it, but he's creating a function, a way to measure time so that if you have got uh, the sun for the daytime and the moon for the nighttime and the stars, that God is creating time rather than talking about a specific thing. Now, here's the reason for doing that. If you can make Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as not be historical, not referring to an event in time, then you don't have to worry about harmonizing that with what science says. It's an attempt to try to make Genesis poetic instead of literal history. But now what that would do is that would make a whole lot of passages meaningless. I could think of just a whole bunch off the top of my head. In fact, one I didn't even put in the outline that just I thought this afternoon. Genesis 1.26. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The very inst- the creation of a man and a woman and gender. What would that mean if... This is nothing more than a poem or as some sort of metaphor. What about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6? He said, Have you not read them who made them in the beginning, made them male and female? And for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Where did marriage come from? Jesus said it came from the beginning. If this is just some sort of poem, it doesn't have any meaning at all. But let me take you a little bit further. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, knowing being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. If Noah is nothing but some sort of a metaphor, what does this mean about him preparing an ark? Did Noah build an ark or not? Was there a flood that Moses described or not? If Noah is not real, Adam is not real, Eve is not real, then what does the Bible mean at all? Or passages like 1 Peter 3.20 He talks about people who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which it is few that his eight souls were saved through water. If you destroy the flood and you destroy the message of Noah, what do you do with God's judgment of sinful man? Or let's tie it with 2 Peter 2 verse 5. He said, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, in bringing the flood of the world of the ungodly. You see, if everything's a metaphor, all of these passages, which we find in the New Testament, which reference those events, then they become meaningless. Well, very briefly, there's some major conflict between Genesis and evolution. 
Evolution cannot answer the question, which came first, the hen or the egg? I have talked to a number of people who are evolutionists, and I have yet to have anyone who would say, this one came first. They can't answer that. But I can tell you what Genesis chapter 1 says, the hen came first and then came the egg, because God created the hen. Now let me ask you a question. When God created Adam and God created Eve and God created the hen, how old were they? Well, at one minute, they were one minute old. But how old did they appear to be? Well, they were capable of reproducing, so they must have been of adult stage. What about the hen? Must have been an adult hen. What about a tree? What about a mountain? Did God create this world with the appearance of age? Obviously, he did. The second thing that there's a major conflict is the age of the earth. If you talk to an evolutionist, they will immediately refer you to the geologic timetable. I preached on this before, been asked to do so, but it's a farce. It has this idea that there's layers that if you just dig down, you'll reach each one of these layers, and each layer you can identify, and going backwards, you can find just the simple cell of various... Uh, Animals or insects here, and then you can go up and go up, and then finally at this top level, the only problem is, is that's not what you find. What you do find is, is that sometimes you have those things that were supposedly uh, extinct billions of years ago being squashed in the footprint of a human. Oh, that does present a real problem. Then you have a big, big thing. If man came from a monkey, here's a monkey over here, and man is over here, where are all those intermediate life forms? They're not in the fossil records. You see, the truth is, is that if you're looking for proof, you will find proof in the book of Genesis that accords with what you see. You don't find it with evolution. And evolution has no explanation for the beginning of life. Never has life come from non-life. A thing such as spontaneous generation does not occur. Hebrews 3 verse 4 still says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. That took a little longer than I intended it to, so let's take our second question real quickly. Is it wrong to worry so much? Sometime I worry about my worrying. Hey, I just read the questions as they're given to me. I think that is probably an extremely sincere question that deserves a very sincere answer. I think many of us at times do struggle with worry. And we ask the question about what is you are you worried? Why is one worried? What can I do to alleviate worry in my life? Let's explore those ideas real quickly. What are you worrying about? Well, sometimes there is a legitimate concern. And I'll give you a biblical example of that. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, Paul is giving a list of things that he had endured 
for the sake of the gospel, he comes to the very last and he says, besides that which comes upon me, besides the other things, that what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. The original word there for deep concern is my anxiety, my worry. Did Paul worry about the churches with which he had worked? Absolutely he did. Is there going to be somebody come onto this congregation and teach something false and lead them astray? Are these people over here becoming weak and are they going to fall away? Paul prayed for them daily. He worried about them. Sometimes we worry about our children. That's a legitimate concern. That's an obligation that a parent has. And in the sense of worry there, there's not, if you will, an error in it. Others worry about things like food and clothing. The great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The Lord said, you've got to look at things. You've got to say, what are you really worried about and why are you worried about it? Let me tell you some of the things that affect us. You go to Luke chapter 10, you've got Mary and Martha there, and the Lord has entered their house. Mary has sat down and is listening to everything that Jesus says. Martha is just, the text said she is cumbered about with much serving. She's the woman who's slinging the pots and the pans, trying to get everything ready, trying to get the table set, trying to get the food on the table. And Martha comes to Jesus and said, Lord, my sister Mary has left me to serve alone. Tell her, therefore, to help me. And Jesus' answer was, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. I'm afraid sometimes that describes us. We've allowed ourselves to become so consumed by Worldly pursuits and difficulties, that's what consumes us. Well, that brings up the question, why are you worrying? What good does worrying do about things you cannot change? You think about that. There's a lot of things you can't change. You can't change the weather. In reality, you can't change what other people choose to do. You may try to influence them. But ultimately, it's their choice. Jesus asked in Matthew 6 and verse 27, Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Is there one of you who can add an inch to your height? Or maybe a few hairs to your head? Or maybe a few minutes to your life? No, no. You you understand that There's things that you can't change. Worry is generally a sign of a lack of faith and trust in God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 28. Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, nor they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you Oh, you of little faith. If God cares for the animals and God cares for even the birds of the field, will he not care 
for us. Let me tell you what I have observed, and it is revealed in Scripture. Worry brings about depression. It brings about discouragement. In Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But a good word makes it glad. Psalm 42, verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Why are you discouraged? God is in charge. Well, I have to make this practical. What can I do, what can you do to alleviate some worry? The first one I think is found by Jesus himself in Matthew 6, verse 34. He said, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Our biggest problem is is that we're often going and trying to borrow on tomorrow's problems and we are letting it become an avalanche in our life. What Jesus said is, take care of today now. Don't worry about tomorrow. I know that's hard to do, but learn to take today and deal with today's difficulties. Number two, Learn to ask God for help. When you are in a difficult situation and things are discouraging, ask God to help you. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 1 Peter 5 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. The Lord would ask the question, if your son came and asked you for bread, would you give him a stone? If he came and asked you for a fish, would you give him a scorpion? He said, then if you, being evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven? You know, if you, one of these little children comes up to you and says, I'm worried I'm not going to have anything to eat tonight. I know what most of us would do. We'd say, come on, let me take you somewhere and buy you something to eat. We don't want you to be worried about that. We shouldn't be worried either because God cares for us. Now someone says, but I'm worried about a big problem in my life. Maybe I'm worried because I've done something wrong and I am afraid it's going to just get worse. Well, it may. Correct any problem that you can as soon as you can. If there's a problem between you and your children, there's a problem between you and your parents, if there's a problem between you and your brother and your sister, if there's a problem between you and a brother or sister in Christ, don't worry about it. Take care of it. That's what Jesus said. If you get to the altar and you know that your brother has all again, leave there your gift by the altar. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I think asking questions is a great way to learn. And we need to make sure we learn to ask the right questions. I've thought about this every time I preach on the question and answers. When I get to the end, I keep emphasizing what must I do to be saved? That's the question I need to know. 
And I can tell you the answer to that question is revealed that you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Acts 16, verse 30, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You have to repent of your sins. We studied about that this morning. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the first part of that verse. You have to be baptized for the remission of your sins. As the rest of Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says. Sometimes we're Christians. We're followers of God. And we're saying, I I don't know what I need to do. Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to live? Well, tonight, if you want to become a Christian or you want to have the prayers of the church, we stand ready to assist you. And if you'll come, as together we stand and sing.